starting in Matthew chapter 12. And we are going to pick up in verse 22. I think I'm saying that correctly. And we're going to start with the unpardonable sin. I'm going to go ahead and let you know so you can hold me to it. My goal is not to give you too much. And my goal is not to preach too long. Pray for me. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now notice this was a public event. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, now, if you've got a pen, if you've got a highlighter, I don't care what it is. This is very significant because Jesus has just performed a miracle for people to see. If you weren't at the chosen thing last night, you should have been. It was a good time. But one of the very first instances that happens is in the first episode, Jesus deals with a demon-possessed woman. And it's kind of creepy, but it's also kind of awesome because it gives you maybe a, a, a step into history to see what that might have been like. So he heals this man. He's able to see. He's able to speak. And the crowds, tons of people, witness this. And they come to a common conclusion. What was the cultural, on-the-street opinion of what Jesus had done at that moment? This is highly significant. He says, this man cannot be the son of David. Can he? Now, they're not really asking for a no, yes. They're not really asking for that, are they? This really is a question that's not really a question. It's coming to a, this is unbelievable. Is he actually this? Now, when he says, son of David, you tell me. What are these Jews thinking when they see a demon cast out and a man made whole? Anybody know? What was the promise made to David? Through your offspring will come a king, and he will sit on the throne of David forever. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, is he currently sitting on David's throne? No. That'll happen in the future when he brings back the kingdom after the tribulation and he establishes his rule for a thousand years. But notice that it didn't take any kind of extra education whatsoever for them to see what had happened, to be able to testify with their eyes of what Jesus was capable of of doing, and to come to a common conclusion. He is fulfilling perfectly what God desires to fulfill in the person of the Messiah. They understand who He is. And they've been waiting so long, I can understand why it was in the form of a question. Now, as with anything good, you always have someone who's going to come along and sour the milk. Look what happens. Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now everybody call a spiritual timeout for a second. 
Anybody ever known evil people to want to do really good things? Evil people do what? Evil things! Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, well, this guy cast out a demon and made him whole, and now he can see what he couldn't do before, and now he can speak intelligibly. He's in his right mind. Well, he must be the Messiah. No, 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 no. He's the devil's guy. Now, watch what just happened here. By the way, we cannot commit the unpardonable sin now. It's impossible, okay? Because what these people did, even the Pharisees, witnessed this situation. They understand the Scriptures better than you and I will. And they come to the conclusion that he's from Satan. Satan is getting the glory for God making a man whole. Does everybody see how messed up that is? Now, why would the Pharisees not just say, Oh my gosh, it's the Messiah! And fall down in humility and say, He's here to bring the kingdom. Why? Let me ask you this. What keeps us from doing that? Say it again. Pride. Pride. You don't understand. I'm a ruler of the Jewish people. They look to me for answers. I get really great places when I want to go hang out at Arby's. I get to eat all the choice stuff. People are bringing gifts my way. I dress well. I have all kinds of riches. I don't need anything. It's all about keeping up appearances. This guy's from Nazareth. You ever been to Nazareth? It's the armpit of the Middle East. Nobody wants anything good from there. Isn't that even how they questioned him? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, Messiah. And notice, it's a wall. It's a mass that we build up. Why? Let's keep up appearances. Let's discredit him. Anybody... Been exposed to any verbal discrediting, whether of yourself or in the media by chance? There's always a verbal discrediting of people to try to ruin the opportunity to make a difference. And so the leaders, get this guys, because it's a prince wall throughout scripture, leaders speak for a nation. The leaders conclude, this miraculous work of God Satan was behind it. Now, I love that Jesus doesn't just let an argument lie. Verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. How can Satan do good things when Satan's bad? That's what he's saying. Notice he says here, And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Now then, will his kingdom stand? And of course, the argument that he's trying to pose is, is, well, we'll no. Because if Satan does good things, is he not working against his purposes? Yeah, why? Because Satan's a bad guy, right? And if you want to picture him with the horn tail, cool, pitchfork, fine, doing the mustache thing, I don't care. But the fact is, is he's bad, Jesus is good, and people can't recognize that with their own two eyes. Because their heart, has blinded them from accepting it. Now watch where he goes. Verse 27, If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Obviously, the sons of the Pharisees had the ability to also cast out demons at that time. Well, if I'm doing it, 
and the devil's behind it, the devil must be behind your sons as well. That doesn't sound like a good way to make friends and influence people. But it gets the point across, doesn't it? And then here's the clincher. Watch this. It says, sorry, let me finish 27. For this reason, they will be your judges. They'll stand in judgment of you. Verse 28, here it is. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, stop. What is the power that Jesus is exercising to do these miracles? It is the Spirit of God radiating through Him, bringing testimony to the fact of who He is. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then the problem isn't necessarily that I'm from Satan or I'm from God. The fact is that everything that he is showing them testifies to his person, testifies to who he is, and they refuse to believe it. Now here's why this is a pivotal moment. And you may remember this way back we went through the foundational framework series. At this moment right here, Jesus' ministry completely changes. Before, his message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. At this moment, after these leaders make this conclusion about him, with all the evidence that they have, everything that they know about scripture, seeing the responses of the people, having these well people come and testify before them of what has happened to them. And now they decide, no, we're going to say that that's satanic because we refuse to bow down to it and accept that prophecy is coming true before our eyes. Everything shifts. Jesus now talks about his death. He begins talking about his resurrection. He begins talking about his ascension. He begins talking about his betrayal at the Pharisees' hands. He began speaking to them in parables because obviously they don't want to listen to plain words anymore and so he judges them by speaking figuratively. And the tide turns and he is turning away from Israel. Now if you want a decent lesson for today, at the very minimum, with all the revelation that we've been given in God's word, for us to sit there and read something about it and go, you know what? I just don't care about that making a difference in my life. Pay heed to what happened to Israel after all the grace that was given to them. Because now Jesus turns away from them. And he's not going to work with them actively anymore. They've been given a second place situation. Now with that, turn with me to Matthew 21 and let's see how this fills out. Because now Jesus is speaking in parables. The question under consideration is one of authority. The chief priests and the elders want to know by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to teach these things? To overturn these tables? To cast out these demons? To heal these sick people? Where did you get your authority from? And so there's a series of three parables that are together here in Matthew 21. We're only going to look at the middle one because of a statement that is made. And you'll have glimpses of this parable of the vineyard in Luke and Mark as well. But there's something that Jesus says here that is absolutely pivotal about what's happening with Israel's heart, how he's turning away from them, and how there's a brand new idea, a brand new thing, a brand new entity that is going to open up. Here's a story he tells. Look at verse 33, Matthew 21, 33. Listen to another parable. Now that's important 
because he's giving you the genre that you're dealing with. What is a parable? A parable means to come alongside, and it's a story that Jesus is going to tell that will hopefully illustrate better a truth that needs to be communicated. So listen to his story. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. He has a plot of land. He gets it all prepared. He gets it all protected. He makes sure that things are going well. Everybody has everything that they need in order to successfully produce wine. Yes, you read it correctly. For you legalists, you're not going to last today. Producing wine. And then he hires some people, which this wasn't unusual for the culture at that time. Bringing in workers. I've got employees. They've now been entrusted with somebody else's property. There's now a stewardship that is undertaken. I am responsible for handling this well in light of the person who actually owns it all. And then the landowner does what? He's absent from the scene. Okay? Which means there's a lot of trust going on here. Now, failing is only an option for one reason. And that is because personal responsibility rests upon the vine dressers, or the, what are they called here? Forgive me. The vine growers. It rests upon them of whether they're success or failure. Do they have all the tools they need? Yes. Do you think that this guy did a good job because he wants good wine? Absolutely. He's personally invested in this situation. So absolutely it's going to happen. So notice he goes on a journey, verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Now there's nothing unusual about that. Why? Because it's time for the harvest to come in and he owns it. Yes, it's his. So I'm going to send some of my other guys to go pick this stuff up and to bring it back because it's mine. Look at verse 35. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. That is not the welcome wagon that you want. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. Why? I mean, aren't they hired? I mean, you own Pizza Hut, you show up to Pizza Hut to get the deposit, got a delivery driver trying to smack you? Is that how you want things to go? I know that's a terrible example, but good grief. Doesn't it seem absurd to you? Doesn't it seem that there is a disruption in authority here? Everybody see that? The question is one of authority. And obviously the vine growers are indifferent to the authority of the landowner Maybe because he's not around. Maybe because they understand that the slaves coming to them are just hired people like they are. Anyway, maybe understanding that they don't care who's in charge. Get this. They're going to do what they want to do regardless of what anybody has to say about it. Pride. Pride is the problem. So now verse 37. But afterwards he sent his son to them, saying... They will respect my son. 
all of his credentials are going to check out. He's going to make sure that as they look at his life and as they look at my word, that there's going to be no disruption in what they find. Verse 38, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Ah, stop. Do they know who he is? Oh, yeah, they do. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. I don't know if these vine dressers are playing too much Grand Theft Auto or what, but they got violence running through their veins. And here's a very interesting thing culturally that went on. If you were somebody who owned a piece of property and you hired workers in order to take over the load and to do all the manual labor for it, and you didn't have an heir of which to pass this family business along to with owning the land, then the ones who worked the land upon the passing of the landowner received it. And they became the rulers over that plot. Think about that. Let's get rid of his son so that we can take it. We can rule on our own. We don't need the landowner. The sooner he gets out of the way, the better. Why? Because he's just holding us back. Well, his ways of doing things are old-fashioned. Well, you don't understand how hard I've worked and what I deserve as a vine grower here. Pride and selfishness fuel the day. So they want to kill the son. Verse 39, they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. It's very interesting that Jesus Christ was crucified outside of the city walls. They threw him out, they killed him. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? Let me ask you, don't look at the next verse. You own it. Whatever it is, you got people in charge of it. They're supposed to take care of it. They're supposed to take, if they're going to have pride, they need to take pride in their work because they're working for somebody else. It's not like they're disadvantaged. It's not like that their working conditions are terrible. In fact, they've been told that if they will just follow the instructions that the landowner has put forward, their working environment will be incredibly blessed. And yet the result is always violence and murder, violence and murder, violence and murder. For anybody that comes to them as a representative of the landowner. And so when the son, who is the heir of the family business, shows up and they kill him, and the landowner decides he's going to pay a visit, what would you do? You'd fire them. You're fired. Shoot them. Now we're getting some honesty out in the open. Right? They got violence against my guys. They're going down. What would you do? See, now we're scared to answer. Look what it says. They said to him, now stop. This is comical a little bit. Who's they? The chief priests and the elders. Notice that Jesus tells this story and asks them directly, what will the landowner do when he comes back? What do you say? Anybody want to guess who the vine growers are? The elders and the chief priests and the Pharisees. And here's what they tell him. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Did they answer correctly? 
Yeah. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures? Now stop. For him to say that to chief priests, Pharisees, and elders is like taking off the glove and across the face. Had they ever read that? Yeah. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. Of course they'd read it. But because of a prideful heart, they're refusing to put it together. So here's where Jesus takes them in the Old Testament. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Who's the stone? Jesus. Who are the builders that rejected the stone? Israel. And notice what it says. He became what? The cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. The very entity within a building of which it cannot stand because all the walls are joined into it and rely upon it to be sound in order for the continuation of the structure to be sound. The very significant person that you had waited all your life for has now bypassed because of prideful rejection, hardness of heart. Now here's the pronouncement. Verse 43, here's what you want to get. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. There's the judgment. The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from Israel. And it is going to be given to a people who are going to produce the fruit. Now notice it doesn't say it's going to be given to a people who bring about the kingdom. Who brings the kingdom? Jesus does. But there's something that's going to happen here that now fruit is going to come about, produce is going to come about, a production is going to come forward that is going to testify of kingdom-like things. Anybody want to guess who this nation is who is being brought forward to produce this type of fruit? It's the church. In fact, if you have your Ryrie Study Bible, look down at your note, chapter 21, verse 43. This is the church. The church has the blessed privilege that we have because of Israel's hardness of heart and their disobedience. Because they failed to recognize? No, not so much. Because they knew who he was. And they rejected him and hated him to the point of murdering him. God set them aside. He didn't do away with them. But he set them aside. And he has brought forward this brand new entity called the church that will manifest a relationship with God that preaches to this disobedient people. Now, with that in mind, let's finish this little passage first and then I want to show you something. Verse 44, He who falls on this stone, who's the stone? Jesus will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust, pulverized. You ever seen something pulverized? Man, it's drag. I remember one time a long time ago, little story. I remember one time a long time ago, I'm watching a David Letterman, uh, man, this was like 90s or something, and he had this two ton block up on a crane, 
and they were putting stuff under it and dropping it on it. And I don't care who you are. That's fun. Okay? And I thought it was great because they put a drum set out there. And man, they just crushed it to bits. And I thought, this is a terrible drum set. But I still thought it was really cool. Pulverized. Ground into bits. The opportunity to accept the difference maker of the universe because he created it. And because my hardened heart wants temporary power and temporary recognition and to be all that and to be thought highly of amongst people and to not associate with the lowly and to never give up or relinquish any of those privileges that I've worked so hard to achieve and taking pride in all of this. Not recognizing that the one that I could have been alongside praising, championing, has now become the very stumbling block that's in front of me that will destroy me. All because they had the opportunity to accept him and they didn't. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, here it is, they understood that he was speaking about them. Uh Uh-oh. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus spoke in parables as a means of judgment so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not understand. Let me ask you a question. Did that completely block them out? No. Didn't they get it? They understood. Wait a second. He's talking about us. Now, I don't know about you. I would have liked to have seen that on film when they recognize this. Good facials there. Verse 46, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Jesus makes an incredible pronouncement, and it all started with attributing the wonderful abilities and blessings of God to Satan's glory. This pronouncement, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to a people producing the fruits of it. Inside your handout, your bulletin, you have this little piece of paper. And what's incredible about this piece of paper is that it lists for you 40 different things that became true of you at the moment that you heard the gospel and you believed it. You didn't have to do anything to earn it. God already prepared everything about it to be a reality in your life at the moment you responded in faith. You can find this. You notice you got a footnote on the back of it. It's in Lewis Perry Chaper's book, Grace. There's an even more long-form one of it in his book, Salvation. But I added one at the end, and I want to just read through this so that you can see. What do you mean producing the fruits of it? One of the great distinctions is the fact that the church has the indwelling Holy Spirit. Israel never did. If we are doing anything, we are able to do spiritual works that are pleasing to God because the Spirit is the one that's doing the works through us. And He is the one who secured these realities for us in the death of Christ. When He died, we died. When He rose, we rose. And so what's true of Him is true of us. And so is all of these blessings because of His work. So look, elect and called of God. You've been chosen for a purpose. You have a mission to fulfill. You have a task that He's commissioned you to. Redeemed by God through the blood of His Son. Reconciled to God by the death of His Son. No more friction. You now have peace with Him. Sheltered eternally under the propitiation, that means satisfaction, made in the blood of Christ. Forgiven all trespasses. Past, present, and future, 
Do you recognize that there's not one sin against you right now? Not one. All of them have been forgiven. Condemned. No more. Forever. I would never word it that way. But good grief, it sounds awesome. Condemned no more forever. Never to be condemned. Justified freely by His grace. That means when God sees you, He sees you as perfect. Sanctified positionally or set apart unto God in Christ. You've been perfected forever. Made meet to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. That means you got stuff coming to you that you don't deserve. It's all in store for the future. Made accepted in the beloved. Made the righteousness of God in Him. Made nigh to God in Christ. A child and son of God. Free from the law and dead to the law. You know what that means? There are no expectations placed upon you in Christ. Why? Because they're already all fulfilled and met in Christ. It's never about what we have to do to gain acceptance. It's full acceptance because of what Christ has done. Delivered from the power of darkness. You've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You've been founded on the rock, Christ Jesus. God's gift to Christ. Do you realize that you and I are God's gift to Christ? There's a part of me, not to sound blasphemous, but God, could you have shopped at a better place? I'm kind of a flawed diamond over here. If that, good grief. We are circumcised in Christ. That's weird. But what does that mean? It means that we have a brand new standing in Him that we couldn't have had before because we were blinded to the truth. It says here, we are a holy priest, chosen and peculiar or special. We are the object of divine love, grace, power, faithfulness, peace, and consolation. We are the object of Christ's intercession. Why? Because the Savior is praying for us. We are His inheritance. We're seated in the heavenly in Christ. We are a citizen of heaven, of the family and household of God. We are light in the Lord. We are in God, in Christ, and in the Spirit. We are possessed with the first fruits of the Spirit. We've been born, baptized, indwelt, and sealed by the Spirit. We have already been glorified. We are complete in Him, and we are possessing every spiritual blessing. In other words, the landowner has come along, and he has taken us spiritually and outfitted us with everything. And it's never, well, I need this. Well, I need this. Well, you need nothing. The only thing you need is Christ, and you already have Him fully. I don't know about you, but I should have got 10 million amens on that one. Because that's good stuff. And let me tell you this. This is important. The reason why I wanted something like this to put in front of your eyes is because if we don't think about ourselves this way, we are not thinking about ourselves from God's point of view. Now, I don't know about you, but what He thinks of me is much better than what I think of me. And I need to stop thinking of me and start thinking of him because he's thinking of me. Now, the very last one here, in addition to this list, and this is where I believe, I mean, all of these things are manifestations of what the Spirit has done in our lives, and we are producing the fruit that would come with someone who is in line for the kingdom. Israel's missing out right now. But in addition to this, every believer in Christ has also been graced 
with at least one spiritual gift to be used for the edification of the body of Christ unto the glory of God. These are gifts exercised in the Spirit, hence they're spiritual gifts, and they reflect the church's stewardship of the fruit of the kingdom of God while it is in postponement. In other words, right now, the reason why I'm so jazzed and hyped up about the church is because we are in a special time period that we have completely taken for granted. This is a time for the Spirit to be manifest in every one of our lives so that we are building up one another, living as we truly are, so that God is doing God things through the body of Christ. But if we don't know our spiritual gift, we are not employing our spiritual gift. We are at an incredible disadvantage to run this race well. So we need to understand, how did this blessing come to us? It came to us because a people who had full access and were completely prepared to receive this promised kingdom rejected it in favor of self. There's our warning. We have been an incredibly best people because of the disobedience of another. And all of these things testify there is coming a day when our Savior will return. We proclaim His death, how long? Until He comes. And then we can stop. Why? Because He's here with His kingdom, sitting on His throne, ruling righteously. And we have been prepping people by the Spirit being exercised through us for that time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for innumerable gifts in Christ our Lord. Father, it's tragic to think about the failure of Israel in responding to the truth that they've been given. But Father, we praise You that their failure gave way to Your extraordinary grace towards us. We need to understand that in the church, Jesus is doing a brand new thing. That you are working in a way that you have not previously. And that we are fully prepared, complete, and accepted in Him. Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts and minds for future Sundays as we walk through this grand subject. That we could represent you faithfully as you have blessed us not as we think we ought to be or what we should be, but who we are in Christ. Thank you for these blessings. May we hold fast to them, meditate on them, and live as the people that you say that we are in Him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.